Acts chapter 15, we are moving our way through the book of Acts, verse by verse and chapter by chapter, discovering the Holy Spirit. And we see in chapter 15, the Holy Spirit really bringing the church into doctrinal unity. And that's one of the roles of the Holy Spirit. And the challenge we face in churches is this combination of unity and diversity. I went to a four-year university to get a bachelor's degree. I learned a lot when I went there. Many of you graduated from a university. One thing I didn't learn there was what the word university actually meant. I didn't learn that till much later. Have you thought about that? University, I never thought about what it means. Did you see that it's a combination of two words, unity and diversity? I thought, huh, it was right in front of me all the time. Unity and diversity is university. So church is really a place of university, so to speak. There's unity, and there must be this great doctrinal unity, but then there's also this tremendous diversity. And we appreciate both of those, don't we, church? I mean, we appreciate that we're not all carbon copies. That's one of the things I love about being a Christian. When you get there, you realize the diversity is wonderful. So many places try to conform you into the image of the church. Well, really, you have to look like us and sound like us and dress like us and carry the same Bible and do all the same things. And and I'm so thankful that you guys aren't like me. And believe me, uh, I'm thankful that I'm not like you. I mean, we are just appreciating that diversity. And so Acts 15, this issue of salvation, this is an essential issue, isn't it, folks? How is a person saved? Are they saved by becoming a Jew first and then coming to God through being a Jew? Or can they be saved apart from becoming a Jew, just by God directly right where you are? And the answer, as they hash it out, Peter shares his experience. Paul and Barnabas share their experience. James gets into the Word of God, and then they say, hey, this is the deal. We're saved by grace alone. And we celebrate that, and we rejoice in that. And at the same time, having been saved by grace, there's also personal considerations because of diversity that we have to be sensitive to one another as we worship together, as we share meals, we break bread, we walk together in Christ. There's an appreciation for a love for one another and an appreciation of the differences. And so those have to be considered. Middle of chapter 15, verse 21, that's where we end off the Jerusalem council, you could say, these elders, apostles, this whole group meets of leadership meets in Jerusalem, and they hash this thing out, and they make this decision. Now, what do they do with that decision? Begins in verse 22. They have to let other people know about the decision that was made. So they send out a letter. Verse 22 tells us, then it pleased the apostles and elders with the whole church, that's the church that's down there in Jerusalem, headquarters, so to speak, to send chosen men of their own company to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, namely Judas, who was also named Barsabbas, and Silas, leading men among the brethren. So pay attention if you would. The decree is made. The decision is made. There's unity. Notice that in verse 22, this tremendous unity. There was no more factions. The experiences were shared, but James seals it up with quoting from the Old Testament, says, hey, here's what God is saying. And they all know this is where unity comes from. So why are there so many divisions? Why is there so much difficulty doctrinally? Oftentimes it comes because, well, denominations may choose to set aside the Bible and instead discuss, you know, church traditions and church practices. 
Well, you're not going to find unity in that. There's no base for that. There's no foundation there. But when a church, when the church continues in and holds up and reads from the Word of God, what happens is the Spirit of God then brings people into unity. One thing you might be interested to know around here, sometimes people ask, well, we're not a congregationally led church. You figured that out, right? We don't bring things to a congregational vote. We're what's called an elder-led church. We have uh, now an increasing number of elders here in our church, and we make decisions. And what you might appreciate knowing is we make decisions in unity or unanimity, you might say, unanimously. So some church bylaws call for 75% to go forward, and other church bylaws call for a majority or whatever the bylaws might say. Just so you know, Calvary Chapel, unless all of us are in agreement, those spiritual men that God has raised up to provide oversight and leadership for the church, unless all of us agree, we don't move forward. Well, that seems like it's really hard to move forward with anything. Actually, it's not, because we believe the Spirit of God has one will, right? The Spirit of God is not schizophrenic. That if God is speaking one thing to you, that he won't be speaking another thing to me. So what happens when we don't all agree? We pray and we wait. So many times it's a no-brainer. We just see the Lord is moving this direction and there's great unity. But when there have been those times when there's not unity, we say, well, you know, we don't want to leave somebody behind. Maybe the Lord is not, we just need to seek the Lord. Maybe the Lord's not moving that way. Let's pray and let's seek the Lord about these things. So I like that about this letter when it comes to the church in Antioch, there's great unity behind it. It pleased the apostles, the elders with the whole church. And then they send these two guys, Judas. I bet that's kind of a bummer of a name to have in the early church, you know, Judas. Well, I'm also called Barsabbas. You got to just call me Barsabbas, please. And Silas, these two leading men, they send this contingency from Jerusalem to sort of validate that the church is now unified around the issue that salvation comes by grace, the grace of God alone, and not through works. And we're going to watch the church celebrate that. And that is to be celebrated, church. We can't talk enough about being saved by the grace of God. And we're so thankful for it. I mean, if you think about it, sometimes people take the Bible as a book that's the instruction manual on how I save myself. If I just do everything that's in here, then I will save myself. Well, the first problem with that is you can't do everything that's in here. You're going to fail. And that's the problem with the law. That's the problem with law means what I do for God. If I'm saved based on what I do for God, I have to be consistent and perfect all the time. But grace means what God does for me. You see, if I'm saved by grace and it's based on what God does all the time, that he can do perfectly all the time, then I'm safe there. I mean, imagine if our local rescue squad believed salvation by works and not by grace. What if the local rescue squad showed up at the accident scene and you were pinned in the car with no way out? And they said, well, I'll tell you what, we'll give you the tools to save yourself. Here's the jaws of life. Here's the instruction manual. Now we'll explain it to you as you go, but then you have to do it. How would that work for a person that is stuck, trapped, jammed? Where you say, well, thanks a lot for the tools and the manual, but I'm stuck. I need help. And the help can't come from me. The help has to come from outside of me. You see, the problem, we don't like that because of our pride. We don't like to admit we need help. When an offer has come for prayer, anybody who needs prayer, come up. No, I'm not going up because then people will know I need help. It's okay. Matter of fact, it's essential to being saved to confess that you need help. And so for the church there, 
for the Gentiles to realize they don't have to become Jews and the Jews to realize they don't have to become Gentiles. This letter sent to communicate these things. Here's the letter. It's really a very short letter. They wrote this letter by them, the apostles and elders and the brethren, to the brethren who are of the Gentiles, the non-Jews in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia, greetings. Since we have heard that some who went out from us have troubled you with words, unsettling your souls, saying you must be circumcised and keep the law. Side note here, to whom we, have gave, we gave no such commandment. It seemed good to us, being assembled with, notice, one accord, to send chosen men to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. There's somewhat of a run-on sentence there, a lot packed in to the first sentence of their letter. They're expressing to the church that doesn't know the decision that was made, hey, we recognize people have been troubling your souls. Notice, unsettling your souls. It's really a word that means to pack up baggage in order to carry it away, to pack things up, to move to a new location. So they were trying to take the souls of people that had been rooted in grace when they were saved by Paul sharing the gospel with them. They had understood grace, and now they were trying to take those souls that were prospering in grace and move them into law and unsettle them. Wait a second. You know how unsettling it is when you have to move? Like everything's in boxes and it's just unsettling, right? And that's what they were doing to the souls. And they said, we heard about this. And by the way, the people that are coming and telling you these things, look at that little parenthetical statement, to whom we gave no such commandment. By the way, can I just mention to you, church, they didn't come from us. We never sent them. They weren't under our authority. You know, there's a lot of lone rangers out there who are going to say they speak for God, who are going to say they represent the church. Then you say, well, what church do you represent? What church is your sending church? Whose authority are you under? Well, nobody. We're just kind of out there doing our own thing. And we're this little pocket group that believes we found the truth and nobody else has the truth, just us. The last thing I want to do is be represented by churches that are hate-mongering against people and misrepresenting God. And then the news grabs a hold of that and says, look at these Christians. And I say, no, 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 no. Please don't let them represent us because that is not who we are. And they've not been sent out by those in authority, so to speak. They're not coming with any uh, other than on their own as lone rangers. And, and so James and the guys write that in the letter. Hey, to whom we gave no such commandment. They're not, don't, they're not from us. Verse 25, we were all gathered together with one accord. There is tremendous unity and we're going to send you Paul and Barnabas. Look at the note about Paul and Barnabas' lives. They were men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And you'd imagine the honor, if you've ever been to a place where you've heard someone, a missionary speaking, someone who suffered for Christ, we look at them and go, wow, you really laid it on the line. You really, you know, laid down your life. What makes you do that? I imagine if you ask Paul and Barnabas, like what drives you to do that? Like, what drives you to put your life? I mean, Paul stoned to death, dragged out of the city. You know, God raises him up and sends him back in. And all these things that they came against that they were traveling, they would say, "What, Paul, what makes you do this? Barnabas, why did you do that when you were comfy there in Antioch and things were going well? What made you? I don't know. What, what, what do you think they would say? Would Paul say, you know, it's the love of Christ that compels me? Or do you mean the love of Christ that you have for others, the love Christ has for you? Yes. That same love that Christ has for me is the same love I have for others. 
And that's what drives me. And Christ laid down his life for me. Why wouldn't I lay down my life for him? And so many of us, I'd say, the challenge is it's not, well, I would lay down my life for Christ. But yes, you get up in the morning and it's raining. And you go, ah, it's raining. I don't think we should go to church today. I don't think we should sleep in. You know, so it's the, the really, you know, we just have to be honest with ourselves and say, you know what, maybe we can go a little bit extra for Christ. Maybe God's not going to call you to lay down your life in that way. Maybe it's a different way. Maybe it's laying down your reputation at work. You've hidden your Bible. You don't tell anybody there you're a Christian. You're afraid what's going to happen. And maybe it's just, hey, it's time to lay down your reputation. It's time to lay down this or lay down that. Men who risk their lives. Verse 27 says, We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who will also report the same things by word of mouth. So again, unity being defined here, unity being held on, unity being shown. They're going to say the same things. Verse 28, For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things, that you abstain from things offered to idols, from blood, from things strangled, and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. So all these things connected to pagan idol worship, sexual immorality, eating food that was sacrificed to idols, all those things would have freaked out the Jews. And uh, we covered this a little bit last week. But notice this, twice so far in the letter, we see the words, verse 25, it seemed good to us, and verse 28, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. So they had to hash this thing out and make a determination, make a judgment. And that's what they did. And they go, you know what? As we thought this through, as we prayed it through, as we studied the word, this is the judgment that we make. This is what we decided. And the decision is made. Seem good to the Holy Spirit and to us. If you're going to make a decision, first make sure it seems good to the Holy Spirit before you decide to do it. Just because it seems good to you doesn't mean it's good, right? Church, amen on that? Because sometimes things seem good to me at the time in the emotional state that I'm in, and it's not good. The really question is, does it seem good to the Holy Spirit? Can I judge that God would approve of this? So they make this letter, they form the letter, they send it. Now verse 30 says, so when they were sent off, again from Jerusalem, making the trek back up to Antioch, and when they had gathered the multitude together, they delivered the letter. I imagine they waited, especially Paul and Barnabas, because Paul and Barnabas were like, see, we told you. We told you you wouldn't have to do that. They deliver the letter, and they're just waiting for it to be read. And it doesn't take long. It's a short letter. And when they had read it, verse 31 says, they rejoiced over its encouragement. So they were pumped. You know, they didn't have to follow any rituals to be saved. They were pretty certain they were saved already. So they were glad that there was nothing added to them. No yoke, like we talked about last week. No burden of religion put on them. They were just free to be saved by grace and enjoy their faith right where they were. When they had read it, they rejoiced over its encouragement. Verse 32, now Judas and Silas themselves being prophets, also they exhorted and strengthened the brethren with many words. And after they had stayed there for a time, they were sent back with greetings from the brethren to the apostles. So they take the letter up to Antioch, and we see the life of the church playing out. I mean, we see as we read these pages, we're watching as the church is spreading, decisions are being made, decisions that have impacted us on down the road 2,000 years. Had a different decision been made, church would look all kinds of different today. And the letter to the Romans would not, probably not exist if they had made a different decision. 
So they hang out there in Antioch and things are rolling in Antioch. Man, if I could go back in time, I would love to have been part of the church at Antioch. But I hope that I don't have to go back in time to experience that kind of church. Don't you? I mean, don't you say, can't we experience, pastor, that kind of church today where people are coming and prophecy is happening? Notice, by the way, what prophecy for them is, what it means. He says, these guys were prophets and they exhorted and strengthened the brethren. Sometimes we get this trippy idea of what prophecy is, that some guy who's going to come in and share some mysterious vision or dream about future things. Look, we know what the future holds for the church and the world. It's all written down already. You don't have to be any kind of spiritual super person, superpower, to understand what the book of Revelation says. We know what's happening. We know there's a great falling away. You know, we know revivals come and go. Uh, we know the end of the story. So we also know that everything God wanted to say, he said in Jesus Christ. He, Jesus was God's final word. Read it in Hebrews. He spoke definitively through Jesus Christ. Now, prophets can share, share, speaking forth the word of God. Now, oftentimes the role of the prophet is to speak edification, exhortation, and comfort to the church. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians. That's what the prophet does. A person is speaking forth the word of God. And to some people, they just need encouragement. And that's what they were doing. These guys were not just encouraging, but exhorting. I love that word. Do you know what exhorting is? Because we don't really use that word. I don't come home and say, honey, I'm going to exhort you today. She'd say, no, you back off. Don't you do that to me. What is that? Exhorting. It's like the locker room speech. Exhortation is calling a person to live on a higher plane than they're currently living. It's the coach who makes the players believe they can do things they don't believe they can do. It's sort of an encouragement. It's a calling forth, a calling alongside. Come on. It's the father who comes to his son on the field and says, come on, son, we can do this. We can do this. It's the coach who does that. That's exhortation. We need people in the body of Christ who do that, don't we? Don't we need those encouragers, those that say, hey, come on, we can do this. Don't give up. Let's do it. And to strengthen the brethren, we need people who are willing to come alongside to strengthen other people because people come in here really, really weakened, really, really beat up by the world, beat down by family, beat down at work, just discouraged. The church is a place where people get built up. I pray that when you come in here, you feel like you've been encouraged. And if that's not happening, then something's wrong somewhere. If that's not happening, you tell me. I'd come to this church service and I just feel worse when I leave. I hope that's not the case. But tell me if that's you. Because it shouldn't be. Because the Bible says we come together to edify one another. That's not just me to you. That's not just the praise team. That's you guys to each other. That's you praying for each other. That's you talking to each other. That's you encouraging each other. You might be used in a prophetic way in the life of somebody else when they say to you, ah, oh, man, I'm just really... I'm struggling today. And you say, really? Just can I pray for you right now? And you just begin to pray for them and God speaks through you. And it's like, and they leave going, oh, thank you so much. That was so encouraging. Ministry happens in the seats and in the fellowship hall and in the parking lot and out at Dogwood Restaurant and all over the place. And these guys in the church then exhorting, strengthening with many words. I like that, many words, because I use many words. So they stayed a long time. You know, they were just digging it there, just having a great time fellowshipping with the church there in Antioch. And then, well, it's time to go. They say they sent him back with greetings from this church up in the north. But verse 34 says, but it seemed good to Silas to remain there. Paul and Barnabas also remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. Now, we don't know 
did Silas pray about this? I mean, did he talk to God about this? We just don't know. It just said, this is the third time in this little section. It seemed good to Silas to stay there. He's having a good time there in Antioch. Evidently, he's got no ties to keep him in Jerusalem. And it's all one church, right? So he says, you know what? I really feel like I stay in here. And some people would go, wow, dude, you know, how does he know that's of the Lord? And we can get really freaked out. A lot of Christians, I think, really struggle with worry and anxiety about what God's will is. Now, look, if it's a sinful thing you're considering, then you don't have to pray about that. It's not God's will. We know some things for sure in the Bible about God's will, right? It's God's will for you to rejoice. It's God's will for you to know how to possess your body. It's God's will for you to abstain from sexual immorality. It's God's will for you to be thankful. You don't have to pray, you know, God, should I be thankful? No, don't pray that. Just be it. God says, be it. Thankfulness. But there's other things that aren't so clear, aren't there? I mean, do I go to college at college A or do I go to college B or do I live in city C and do I do this? And do I take this job? Do I not take that job? And, and sometimes we can get paralyzed by worrying that somehow we're going to make the wrong step and somehow our God is too small to be able to correct us or to be able to move us. I remember Watchman Nee telling a story. If you're familiar with Watchman Nee, uh, he tells a story to a, a guy in his church who was paralyzed by overanalyzing things in his life. He's overanxious about these decisions. And he told the story of a centipede. And the centipede was all night worrying about walking because he couldn't figure out which leg to move first. I mean, he's got all these legs. And after all, which leg should I move first? I mean, do I move leg 50 on my right or leg 32 on my left? I mean, so many choices. And so all night he stayed up going back and forth in his mind, worrying and wondering, which leg do I move first? And then all of a sudden in the morning, after having wrestled all night, the sun began to rise. And he was so taken by the sunrise that he forgot about his dilemma about which leg to move, and he just started to walk toward the sun. The, the sun captivated him, and he was drawn to it. And all of a sudden, in the captivation of the sun, he forgot about his dilemma about which leg to move, and he just went to the sun. And I think there's some really great wisdom in that simple application, that simple illustration about making decisions. Look, if you're going toward the sun, you're probably okay. Which leg do I move first? Which Do I stay here? Do I go there? Hey, they're all good. Anywhere you go, you release the fragrance of Christ. Maybe that's a better question we should ask ourselves. Maybe the better question is not, where should I go? Maybe the question is, who should I be wherever I am? I think that's a question we could ask. And you know, sometimes you know in your life, well, yeah, I mean, I really feel God is calling me here. And that's okay. But we don't know with Silas. He just, you know, he said, I'm digging it here. So he chooses to stay. Doesn't seem that God doesn't labor over this in his word. Let me just say one more thing about this and we'll move on. I think that uh, our concept of God can cause us to struggle with those anxieties. And maybe I grew up in a pretty gracious home. I mean, when I asked my parents to buy me a unicycle, they got me one for Christmas. And then when I wanted to ride a six-foot unicycle, one showed up from my grandmother. And so my parents were very gracious and encouraging. And maybe because of that, I grew up in an atmosphere where, you know, it was okay to dare and to make mistakes without consequence of, you know, feeling like someone's going to hold it against you. And so maybe you have a concept of God that somehow he's, He's so small 
that he's only got this power to do this one little thing and his power doesn't extend to actually direct your life. See, I read Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. It says, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. The problem of your analysis and your anxiety is oftentimes it's your own understanding. And that keeps you paralyzed. You know, God's ways are higher than our ways. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Not trust in the Lord's direction. Trust in the Lord, Him, a person, that He can do it. That He is able. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge Him. And what's the promise? He will direct your path. He will. So we pray, Lord, help me to acknowledge you in all of my ways. The things I do, the way I do them, Lord, I pray that these things give you glory. And then what do I trust? I trust I'm going to have a burden to go here, a passion to go there, and I'm going to go there, and the Lord's going to, somehow I'm going to look back and go, wow, the Lord was directing me the whole time. Isn't that cool? Anybody had that experience where you just look back and you go, the Lord was just at the helm the whole time. So unity, all of these things discussed, this decree made, this decision impacting. Now, verse 36 begins with, then after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us now go back and visit our brethren in every city where we have preached the word of the Lord and see how they're doing. Now, Barnabas was determined to take with them, John called Mark, but Paul insisted that they should not take with them the one, doesn't even use his name there, the one who had departed from them, in Pamphylia, and had not gone with them to the work. Then the contention became so sharp that they parted from one another. And so Barnabas took Mark and sailed to Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and departed, being commended by the brethren to the grace of God. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. That's a challenging passage, isn't it? And one of the things we love about the Word of God is it doesn't sugarcoat its heroes. I mean, How many of us could say we have had a situation, we've had an issue in our lives where we have just had a falling out with somebody else? Probably almost all of us have at some point. We've had a disagreement. We've had a difference of opinion. We've had a difference in methodology, a difference in decision of what we should do when a certain opportunity came along or a certain circumstance. And you know what? It caused some intense discussion. By the way, if you didn't notice this, notice verse 39. The contention became so sharp. It's a little English word that we get from that Greek word, paroxysm, and it means a violent expression of a particular emotion. So what we want to see is that this was no little rinky-dink falling out that they had. These guys were toe-to-toe over this issue. And to me, Paul and Barnabas, these guys are the dream team. I mean, these guys are the dynamic duo. But we find in life, because of diversity, these things happen. And we know it in our lives. There's been times where, well, we've disagreed with somebody. We've had a falling out. We've gone separate ways. We've agreed to disagree. And we recognize that, you know what? Things haven't changed. The same thing in the early church. And I love to see, this is Paul and Barnabas. These are not, you know, rookies. These guys have spent a year together on the mission field. They've slept side by side on cold stone floors. They've been uh, persecuted together. They've struggled together. They've prayed together. They've preached together. These guys are best of friends. And yet we read about this issue that seems irreconcilable and irresolvable. Now, the challenge with me in preaching this is that it doesn't seem to get tied up, does it? You just read it and you go, huh, where's the part where God speaks 
and Paul submits to Barnabas and they live happily ever after. Where's that part? I want that part. I don't like loose ends. I like things tied up nicely in a bow. Don't we like it like that? But how many of you understand life's not like that? Everything doesn't get tied up in a little bow. Now, there are some other things that will give us some insight. But here's what I was thinking about as I read this. I was thinking about dynamic duos that I was familiar with that split up. Maybe you guys aren't familiar with this, but John Adams and Thomas Jefferson, the second and third presidents, shared one of the most famous friendships in American history, but their relationship was often as rocky as it was warm. The men were first brought together in the 1770s during the Revolutionary War and the Continental Congress. While quite different in appearance and temperament, Adams was a stout, neurotic northerner and Jefferson a slim, genteel southerner. They soon became friends and allies in the fight for American independence. Jefferson and Adams corresponded through letters in their early careers, but they later experienced a falling out over their opposing views on government. After their camps traded slanderous insults during a nasty 1800 presidential campaign, the two didn't speak for several years. Adams finally broke the silence in 1812 after a mutual friend convinced him to write Jefferson a letter. Jefferson responded, and the elder statesmen eventually rekindled their decades-old friendship, exchanging dozens of letters discussing philosophy, religion, and politics. In a famous twist of fate, both men died only hours apart on July 4th, 1826, the 50th anniversary of the Declaration of Independence. Similar situation, right? Two wonderful, passionate guys have a falling out. Years go by, silence happens, and eventually they get back together. One more for you music lovers. You guys might appreciate this. How about Simon and Garfunkel? See, I grew up, my dad just played Simon and Garfunkel all the time. And so I grew up listening to these two gifted guys. They met in the sixth grade in Forest Hills, Queens. Paul Simon, Art Garfunkel discovered they could harmonize in the sixth grade. What they may not have realized at the time, just how far their angelic voices would carry them. Throughout the latter half of the 1960s and early 70s, the duo's literary lyrics, sculpted melodies, and above all, exquisite harmonies combined for a folk pop sound that propelled them to the top of the charts and left a mark on thousands of future singers. They broke up spectacularly and very publicly in 1970, soon after the release of their album, Bridge Over Troubled Water. Simons is said to have resented his dependence on Garfunkel to interpret the songs he wrote, and Garfunkel resented Simons' resentment. They had a fight over going on tour, and Art Garfunkel said, that was our worst ever fight. After all that shouting, we called it quits. And you just go, man. And I would put John Adams, Thomas Jefferson, Paul Simon, Art Garfunkel, I would put Paul and Barnabas right in there with these guys. I mean, great men. Neither of them are slouches. Neither of them are greenhorns. I mean, these guys are living for the Lord. And it's that passion Listen, it's that passion that enables these two guys to go and do what they do on their mission trips to, to stand their ground. It's that same passion that they have as they discuss this issue. And so it's part of their personalities are involved and they see this issue from different sides. There's been all kinds of ink spent on who's right, and who's wrong. I mean, imagine this. Let's just read back in the passage one more time. Now, Barnabas was determined to take with them John called Mark. Now remember, John Mark was the one that had gone with them on their first missionary journey. He had joined the team. He said, hey guys, I'm in, take me with you. And off they go. They go through the island of Cyprus. They experience some things there. And then they come up into modern day Turkey and uh, Mark becomes one. He becomes a Turkey. 
He flies the coop, I guess you could say. I don't know. He says, I'm out of here. That's goofy, I know, but it is what it is. So he says, I'm out of here. And we don't get any more ink on that in chapter 13 where it happens. And I told you when we were there, hey, hang tight. We're going to get to it in chapter 15. Now we see Barnabas, who's cousins with Mark, says, Paul, I'm all together in with you about going back to those places where we made disciples and checking on them and strengthening them. Remember, the apostle Paul was not just an evangelist. He had a pastor's heart. This guy loved people. He wasn't just worried about people being saved. That was certainly a concern of his, but he wanted to make sure those people that started also finished. And that's, as a church, we have that concern, not just coming forward during invitation, but then living and crossing the finish line on the other end. And Paul was concerned about these baby Christians and says, hey, Barney, we need to go and and go back and check on them. And Barney's like, yes, I'm in agreement. Let me go tell Mark to pack his bags so we can all go. And Paul says, wait, 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 did you say Mark? No, 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 we can't take Mark. Barnabas says, what do you mean we can't take Mark? Of course we're going to take Mark. No, 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 we're not taking Mark. I mean, remember what happened last trip? I mean, he got sand in his shoes and he cried and he wanted to go home and he missed his home. We don't know what happened to him. You know, it probably wasn't something so simple as that. He, you know, was he, did he get scared? Did he get cold feet? Did he begin to doubt? We just don't know what happened. But for Paul, it was serious enough to say, hey, I don't think we should take him. Paul felt slighted. Paul felt like maybe he's not committed. And Paul felt the mission is too risky, too serious. Like we can't have somebody coming along with us that's not committed. And I I understand that feeling. Do you understand that feeling of the Apostle Paul? Like, man, if I'm going to go and put my life at risk, I want someone next to me that's got my back, that's not going to run and pack sand as soon as things get tough, not going to cut bait and run. So could we agree with Paul and say, hey, you know, maybe this guy's just not ready for the mission field. I could agree with that. But then Barnabas goes, Paul, how can you say that? Do you remember when we met? Do you remember when no one else trusted you and I trusted you? Do you remember when no one else was ready to give you a chance and I gave you a chance and I brought you in and encouraged others to trust you? Don't you think we should extend that second chance to Mark? I mean, isn't isn't our God the God of second chances? Wouldn't you agree with that? How many of you are thankful that at some point in your life, You blew it. You turned away. You lost faith. You lost hope. You decided, you know, you got soft, whatever, and someone gave you a second chance. How many of us have gotten second chances and third chances and fourth chances? So some of us are going, I think Barnabas is right. I mean, I'm thankful for Barnabas. And they're toe-to-toe now. No, we can't take him. Yes, we need to take him. He has to be discipled. We need to train him. And Paul says, let someone else train him on their trip, not on my trip. And so you want there to be a resolution. We in America, we love resolution, but there's no resolution other than they decide to part ways. Paul says, fine, you want to take Mark? You and Mark go. I'm going to take Silas and we're going to head north and you take Mark and you go south. So Mark, John, Mark and Barnabas go on down to Cyprus where Barnabas is from. The apostle Paul takes Silas, and they head north to where Paul is from. Do they accomplish the work? Yes, they do. But now they do it in half the time because they got two teams. So did God work it for good? Somehow he did. But what about their relationship? Let me tell you a couple things. First of all, I understand these kind of disagreements. The first thing I want you guys to take home from this is that we need to appreciate diversity in the body of Christ. We all aren't wired the same. We all don't think the same. We really work hard 
to make sure I can say for myself, I work hard to make sure if you say, hey, I want to engage in this ministry, I want to do this thing, that not only do you have the authority to do it, but then you have some freedom to do it the way you would do it. See, it's frustrating. Maybe you've been in a situation where someone's asked you to do something, but they want you to do it their way. And you go, well, I don't think like you. I don't work like you. I need to do it my way. And it's really frustrating. And so we see these two great guys. They just have different approaches to the same thing. Neither is right. Neither is wrong. They're just different. They see things differently. And church, can I just say that that's okay? I mean, we love that about church. We would be so boring if we all thought the same and acted the same and operated the same. I love the fact that you bring something to the table that's unique to you and your personality. But in the church, we have this concept like somehow, if I didn't think of it, it can't be right. I mean, only right thoughts come from my mind. Nobody else thinks right thoughts. But we have this little deceptive thing that just because someone wants to do something differently means it's wrong. Now, that may mean we can't work together. I mean, I know people, I know wonderful Christians whom I love deeply who I could not do ministry with because we just have different approaches. And you know what? It's okay. I go to pastor's meetings where I know we have some differences in theology. And they go, why do you come here? I say, I have to come here because you need to know I love you even though we differ. I love you even though we differ. Well, did Paul continue to love Barnabas? It seems like he did. He tells the church in Colossae, Chapter 4, verse 10 says, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you with Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, about whom you received instruction. If he comes to you, welcome him. Kind words from Paul regarding them welcoming Barnabas in. And what about Paul's relationship with John Mark? Do we know anything more about that? Well, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 11 says this, Only Luke is with me. This is Paul's last letter he's about to die. He says, only Luke is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is useful to me for ministry. Wait, did he just say what I think he said? So did Mark grow and was discipled by Barnabas? Or did Paul change his view? I don't know. Could be both, right? Could be both. So number one, appreciate diversity. Number two, don't take it personally. Don't take it personally. When people have a different opinion than you, just because they don't like what you want to do doesn't mean they don't like you. We tend to take differences personally. I don't know why that is. I don't know how we have a difficulty separating what someone thinks or what someone wants to do versus who they are. We seem to clump those things together, don't we? So then if you disagree with me, all of a sudden you don't like me. Me. It's not about me. It's about how we do these things. And you have the right to believe your way and you have the right to go your way. And that's a-okay in the body of Christ. Is it not? church. So again, too many people have gotten, taken things personally. And then what happens with that? So there's a disagreement. You think we should do it this way. I think we should do it that way. You take it personally and you go, well, I'm not coming back to that church anymore. I'm not, I'm just, I'm staying home. Why bother? So the third exhortation is number three, continue in ministry. Even when there's been a disagreement, even if we have differing opinions on how to operate. Remember, they're not differing on doctrine. Their message is the same but their methods are different. I'm accountable to hold on to my convictions about how I feel God wants me to operate in a given situation. You're accountable before God to operate in a way that is consistent with your conscience before God. And we have to be okay with that. But I don't agree with you. That's the point. Can we disagree and still love each other? We may not be able to work together. 
but we can still love each other. So you see what happens? Don't let that stumble you and step out of ministry, step out of your calling for what God has you to do in the body of Christ. See, they continued in ministry. Paul went his way and Barnabas went his way, but they both continued on serving the Lord. Amen? So what do you make of this? These are the challenges we face in the body of Christ. Because there's unity and there's also diversity, we're just going to disagree on some stuff. And unless we settle this right here, right now, and learn to appreciate the diversity and don't take it personally and continue on in ministry, we're going to be a place that the, the world goes, I don't know about those people at the church. They can't even get along. Can we do that, church? Can we sort this out? Amen. Let's pray. Thank you for the personalities of these two warriors for the gospel, Lord, and those same traits that led them to, to be so powerfully used by you in such dangerous places are the same traits that, that make them hold on to their convictions, Lord. And I pray we would be a people firmly rooted in our conviction and also firmly rooted in love for one another. I pray that we would hold that paradox intention, Lord. Help us to do well at that and to continue to accomplish your will in our church, in our county, in our world. It's in Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. Let's stand, church.